Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey everyone, welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. This is the buy when you're thinking rationally, sell when you're panicking, and hold when you're just plain confused edition. I'm Cardiff Garcia. On the show today, two segments. First, I'll be joined by my FT colleagues, Matt Klein and John Authors, to discuss what is now one of the most infamous calls to sell stocks in recent Wall Street history. And what did that episode tell us about the wisdom of advising people on whether to buy or sell? And then after that, we're going to play for you John's interview with Andrew Lowe, a professor at MIT known for his work in financial engineering. Lowe is the author of a provocative new book about the adaptive markets hypothesis, an idea he's been working on for quite a long time. And we'll close, of course, with our long-form recommendations. But right now, I'm joined by Matt Klein of Alphaville. Matt, hello. Hi, thanks for having me. And also here is John Authors, Chief Investment Commentator of the FT. John, hi. Hi, Cody. Okay, our topic in this first segment is the call to sell stocks made on October 6, 2008 by CNBC personality Jim Cramer on the Today Show. Here's what that sounded like. Whatever money you may need for the next five years, please take it out of the stock market right now, this week. I do not believe that you should risk those assets in the stock market. Even if you would take a tremendous loss in selling your stocks at this decline, you say take it out. I don't care. I do not care where stocks have been. I do not care where stocks have been. I care where they're going. And the reason we're discussing this now is that this was mentioned in a big profile of Stephen Bannon in the Wall Street Journal. Bannon is, of course, Donald Trump's chief advisor. And he said that the call was responsible for making his father nervous and convincing his father to sell stocks. And it partly contributed also to making Bannon, Stephen Bannon, uh, the economic nationalist that he is today. And so I think we can maybe even ascribe some of the ugliness, the appeals to racial sentiment and the nativism uh, that come with that to that sense of economic nationalism. Matt, you wrote a piece defending Kramer's call and saying that we shouldn't think it was a bad idea to advise people to sell stocks just because it may have contributed to Stephen Bannon uh, becoming the person he is today. Give us the thrust of your argument. So basically, there are two kinds of financial advice, I think. One are the, is the type of advice that's always true based on first principles. And the, one, the other are tactical advice based on where you think the market is going. And depending upon how you interpret what Kramer said, it could either be deemed the sort of strategic or tactical. But either way, it's totally justifiable. Okay, back up for a second, though. Sure. All right. Tell us what was happening in October of 2008. Right. Remind our listeners, tell us where the market was uh, and what would happen to it in the subsequent years and then in the subsequent almost decade. Sure. So the reason this call was criticized is that the market had already fallen significantly from its peak in the end of October of 2007. And if you look at the chart from October 2008 to now, and you look at that and you say, oh, wow, stocks of American stocks anyway have gone up tremendously. So if you sold then, you would have lost out on a huge gain. You've sold having... Uh, already lost a lot. It was a terrible call. Assuming you hadn't bought back. Right, right. Exactly. But it's also worth looking at perspective for what was going on at the time. Stocks would actually end up dropping more than 20% after Kramer's call and before the bottom in March. So strictly speaking, and in fact, actually, Kramer later on in that little clip says something. He doesn't really say why, but he thinks that stocks would drop at least 20%, which turned out to be pretty much on the money. And part of the reason for this is the fact that despite the intervention of TARP, which hadn't yet really been passed, and and the the bank bailout programs, there was a legitimate panic about the ability of the government to solve the problem. So one of the things I mentioned in my post is that you had a situation where, in principle, the solution is straightforward. You have losses in the banking system that need to be allocated. You have runs on money, on money market funds and other things that can be stopped by the government if they put in certain guarantees. There are certain things that the government could do, but there hadn't been yet a lot of signs that the government was actually competent in doing it. And given what had just happened with the failure of Lehman Brothers and with AIG a few weeks before, 
reasonable people could say, maybe this is not actually going to get better. Maybe it's going to get a lot worse. And one of the things I did is I looked at other examples of, of financial crises in other countries historically, including the United States, and you see actually even after a big decline, it can still be worth selling because it will fall a lot further and stay down for a very long time, whether it's the U.S. and the Great Depression, uh, whether it's Japan in the 90s. You look at Sweden, actually, which came out of its banking crisis pretty well in the, in the early 90s. In all these situations, if you'd taken the advice of, well, it's time to just pull your money out, even after an initial loss, you still would have done better than if you'd left it in. And if you compare it to a lot of the euro crisis countries, again, still turns out to be pretty good advice. Um, even the countries in the euro area that have done relatively well, like France and Netherlands, they've only just, just surpassed the highs that they had in 2007. And this is after nine years. Yeah, I, I like this framework that you used. And before we talk about uh, John's column responding to your article. I want you to elaborate a bit on these points of comparison. So one point you make is that it wasn't obvious at the time that we could rely on policymakers to solve the problem. So you had to sort of get into a counterfactual in which policymakers had screwed it all up, American policymakers. Second, you used the comparison to the Great Depression, right, the 1930s in the U.S., and how much the market fell then, and how actually if you looked at the trajectory of economic indicators in the U.S. in 2008, you could make the argument that we were headed there once again. And then finally, as you just mentioned, you used the experiences of Japan and then the experience that we actually have seen played out of the European countries since 2008 to now, where markets fell a lot more disastrously and they stayed down more sustainably as well. That's right. I mean, it's the idea that because things happened to work out well in the U.S. meant that they had to have worked out well is extreme case of hindsight bias. And we know this by just looking at many other examples of situations where we have these kinds of financial crises. And you look at, as I said, I think the European example is probably the most relevant because this was happening at the same time. There are people who, in many cases, had the same background. They were talking to each other. And it's not just like Greece where you had to drawdowns. I mean, I think, I believe the drawdown was greater than 90% from the peak in Greek stocks, which is, that is a catastrophe. You don't even have to go there. You said, you look at France. France is basically flat in the past nine years. And that's only very recently that it's actually gone up. Same thing with the Netherlands. These are not countries that had big crises. You look at Italy and Spain, it's much worse. So the idea that policymakers in the U.S. could have done something a lot worse than they actually did, and that the, the outcome for stocks could have been a lot worse than it was, I think is entirely plausible, and it shouldn't have been discounted. And speaking of which, it's also relevant that once policy began to change in the U.S. in February and March, and it became clear that there was going to be a real robust response, a lot of people changed their mind, including, as it happens, I mean, I didn't put this in the post, but including Kramer. He actually went on TV in March in 2009 and said, now things are cheap. The downside is capped and you should buy, which would have been, you know, if, if Marty Bannon had listened to that advice uh, as well as the selling, he would have done very well. Yeah, we'll get so we'll get to the other calls uh, in a second. But first, let me turn to John. Uh, mm. John, you wrote that uh, you largely agreed with Matt, but that actually he could have gone even further in defending the call to sell at the time. Uh, yes. And you had a slightly different angle into the problem. What do you think? Well, there are two things. The first, by glorious coincidence, we we uh, we have a studio like most of, most of our office, which is decorated with old uh, Financial Times big pages. And above Cardiff's head at this point is the uh, front page from the Saturday at the end of the week when uh, Kramer had told everybody to sell stocks at the beginning of the week. My face is on there. Gillian Tett's face is on there. What does it say? And it says, Market crash shakes world. How the world's market fell this week. Tokyo down 24.3%. Frankfurt down 21 London down 21 New York down 18%. And I can remember it actually rallied that Friday afternoon because we had to change some headlines where we said everything was down 20%. So Kramer's call actually came on the Monday morning of what turned out to be the very worst week as far as the stock market was concerned of the whole you know crisis the whole nightmare period. the whole crisis so that's one one point in terms of a well-timed intervention yes the market was already down but if you got out that Monday morning when Kramer told you to you you were 20% better off in cash one week later than you otherwise would have been the other point is you need to look at what, presumably, if you're taking money out of stocks, then you're putting it somewhere, and you're probably putting it into treasury bonds. If you look at treasury bonds, over five years, it looks like a bad call, which is what he said, don't don't leave money that you need in the next five years there. Over the, the, the subsequent four years, you would have done exactly as well in treasuries, long treasuries, as you would have done in stocks. The call was almost exactly the same thing 
Had he made the call a year earlier at the top in October of uh, 2007, which fatefully he didn't, and most of his CNBC colleagues didn't either, that would have been seriously useful advice. And that's what led to extreme anger by the time stocks reached the bottom. But I find it hard to have a complaint with somebody telling those at home who might not realize quite how bad things are. At that precise juncture, a lot of us knew as we were arriving at work on Monday, this really looks bad. This is the point when things are about to capitulate. If someone had asked me for my advice, I would have said much the same thing. It really looks like we're finally going to get a crash. And the other, the other thing, the word crash appears in our headline. We had had debates, passionate, nervous debates all that week about whether we could use the word crash because it can be deemed an irresponsible thing for something like the FT to use the word crash. And by the end of the week, we ended up putting it in the headline and nobody even disputed it because by that point, <laughs> the stock market tanked so badly that it was obvious that we were in the presence of a crash. So I do think that Kramer's call was even more defensible than uh, than Matt suggested it was. If he would, His timing was out by one year, but frankly, if you'd sold everything and put it into bonds, four years later, you would still not have lost anything from making that transaction. Obviously, it would have been far better if you'd then got back in at the bottom, which is the will-o'-the-wisp we all chase after. But that call at that point would not have harmed you at all. Yeah, I, I like I like the framework that you use as well of considering the alternatives, which is, I think, uh, what a lot of people often fail to do, where they assume that if you'd mm. sold that you necessarily would have stayed in cash. Mm. That might apply to a lot of retail investors, but institutions certainly aren't going to do that. And if you'd been in treasuries, well, you would have actually made quite a handsome profit in the subsequent years. But I guess my question is this. You've both talked about the importance of considering time horizons, right? Mm. So you would have lost your shirt in the stock market certainly over the next week and the next year, but you would have made quite a bit of money if you just stayed in. And the advice you usually hear from like sober people is, well, look, if you have the money and you don't need to spend it and you have a long enough time horizon, just don't do anything. Don't even pay attention to the news. That would have actually worked in this case. But as Matt said, at the time, it was not guaranteed to have worked because you had all these other convoluted factors involved. And most significantly, this wasn't like a normal market operation, right? You needed the intervention of the government to stabilize things. And there's never any guarantee that the government is going to act in accordance with like sound economic principles. At the time, it wasn't even clear what those principles were because people were just starting to rediscover Keynesianism and all these things. What does this call tell us about the importance of time horizons and whether or not that sound advice sometimes breaks down? Matt, you want to go first? Sure. So I think one of the things, and I mentioned this briefly at the beginning, the idea of strategic advice, that's always true. There's a, there's a way of interpreting what Kramer said. I don't know this is necessarily what he meant. But one way of interpreting what he said is that if you need money in the next five years, take money out of the stock market. There's a perspective which that should always be true. If you have money and you think you might need to spend it in the next five years, putting it in an asset class that is very volatile and that tends to lose a lot of money whenever you are most likely to need it is a bad strategy no matter what the state of the world. You don't need to have a view about what stocks are going to do over the next five years to say that's a reasonable strategy. I mean, if you're, you know, 25 or 30 or whatever, and you're, you're saving for retirement, yeah, putting money in stocks makes sense. If you actually are, are saving up money because you want to protect yourself against, you know, job loss or you're trying to put a down payment on a house or something, putting it in stocks does not make sense because over a five-year time horizon, those stocks could go up 100% and go down 60%. I mean, you don't know. And that kind of risk is something that you get compensated for over decades, but it's not worth taking for a five-year time horizon. And so from that perspective, I think Kramer effectively was always right when he said that. Don, what do you think? I can go along with, uh, with what, what Matt just said. I, the way I would, the, the take I would put on it is that uh, you should all, always have some kind of a balanced portfolio, you should always have something which is considerably liquid. This was a period when um, Matt's alma mater, Yale, ran into trouble for more or less the only time in recent history because it was in such illiquid uh, securities in its portfolio, it actually needed to borrow to uh, to pay the university. Although, to be clear, you're, you're, you're talking about the Yale endowment, <coughs> Yale which endowment. is huge and hugely successful, and David Swenson, the manager, is this very famous person. Um, and deserves to be, and yeah. he's been proved right ever since. But for that one brief period, it did suggest that maybe he could have been slightly more liquid than he was because it's 
never great to have to borrow money. Sorry, you were going to say something. Oh, I was just going to say, at least unlike uh, Harvard, they didn't have to cancel breakfast. Well, there is that. <laughs> <laughs> now, I think the other point, it's again very interesting, it's over Cardiff's head, but... Um, the point is over my head, or no, the, 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 the post? The poster Gillian was quoted as saying, "It's not about faith in banks, but faith in governments to save them." This was a point when political risk was at a premium, and we really political risk is very, very difficult to price. Bear that in mind. And the point I'm quoted as making on that front page is trying to work out when the market recovers or hits bottom is futile. And if I remember right, I think I was making the point then that you need to to put a lot of trust in rebalancing. If the stock market has gone down a lot, return to your previous allocation of 40% in stocks, 30% in bonds or whatever it is, which means after an incident like this that you will buy quite a lot of stocks at or near the bottom when they have just got cheaper and take some profits in the bonds when they have just made a profit. I don't think that's the kind of thing that Kramer is always going out of his way to tell people to do. But I do think for most people having a having a default position of rebalancing to a, a steady state asset allocation is a very good idea and it wouldn't have gone too badly for you in this uh, in this crisis okay and we are actually going to have to leave the first segment there because we're running out of time so let's go to the second segment matt will be back for long-form recommendations at the end of the podcast in the second segment john interviews andrew lowe and we're going to play for you that interview in just a second uh, but first john why don't you Tell us who Andrew Lowe actually is. Andrew Lowe is a professor, long-time economics professor at MIT. He was actually brought up in Queens, uh, and he's a Chinese-American guy who went to, uh, went to high school in New York and went on to be an extremely successful economist. He has generally been regarded as one of the leaders of the behavioral finance school. So although he shares... Uh, She's on the same faculty as people like Bob Merton and the, 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 you know, worked under Paul Samuelson, these arch-priests of, a, of a, a slightly different school of economics. He's been one of the uh, leaders in trying to introduce the uh, insights from behavioral psychology into the study of markets. He has long been known to be trying to come up with a better theory, an alternative theory, to the efficient market hypothesis, which has been around in one form or another since the 1950s and which we all know has problems with it. The question is, can you come up with something better? And the book that uh, I talk with him about is the product of a very, very long labour of love where he tries to explain markets in terms of biology and Darwin rather than in terms of uh, physics and Brownian motion. Yeah, it's known as the adaptive markets hypothesis. It's interesting to me that he doesn't argue for completely abandoning the efficient markets hypothesis. Mm. He doesn't even argue that it's always necessarily wrong, just that it's insufficiently comprehensive. Correct. I mean, a, a lot of the time you can do very well trading on markets on the assumption that they are indeed efficient. I think that's an Andrew Smithers way of taking this is is that is that it's nearly efficient markets by efficient most... we mean that it is incorporating the available information about whatever security you're discussing that the price reflects that information yes exactly or or uh, can be uh, caricatured as saying that the price is always right yes and that leads to the notion that that uh, stocks move in a random walk now plainly in its hardest form efficient markets is wrong on Tuesday the S&P dropped 1.2%. Did the value, the intrinsic value of all the companies on the S&P drop by 1.2% yesterday? Probably not. And and so on and so forth. But at, a, at another level, are people constantly trying to incorporate all information? Is it as good an approximation as most of us can manage of what every security should be worth given the current state of knowledge? I mean, yes. It's obviously not a bad approximation. It's obviously not a bad framework to start studying markets, providing people remember the, the caveats. Okay, and here is the interview between John and Andrew Lowe. Andrew Lowe, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, I have in my hands a, an exclusive 
proof copy of Adaptive Markets Financial Evolution at the Speed of Thought, which is uh, going to be published very shortly. It's obviously a labour of love. You've been working on it for more than a decade. Let's start by asking you, why do you think this book was necessary? What prompted you to try to come up with an alternative to the efficient markets hypothesis? Well, the motivation for the book was really my attempt to try to reconcile two competing theories, the efficient markets hypothesis and all of the behavioral anomalies that psychologists and behavioral economists have documented over the last several decades that argue that that humans really aren't as rational and predictable as we thought. And uh, so the adaptive markets hypothesis is my approach to trying to reconcile those two competing schools of thought. Where do we part company from efficient markets as we've come to know it? Is it to do with the theory of the human brain? Is it as profound as that? Or are we talking more about looking at the kind of uh, flaws in decision-making that uh, the behavioral finances led by Kahneman and Tversky have discovered over the last few decades? Well, I think it is as profound as the origins of the human brain and how it works and how it differs from other species. So, The idea behind the adaptive markets Mm. hypothesis is that the efficient markets hypothesis is not wrong. It's just incomplete. It's only part of the picture. And while the behavioral economists and psychologists have documented departures from rationality, what we really need is a theory that encompasses those kinds of behaviors. And so by understanding how humans actually behave through their brains Mm. and through evolution over time, we can actually begin to develop this broader theory. And that's what the adaptive markets hypothesis is. Okay, so you're borrowing a lot from Darwinian or lots of insight from Darwinian theories of evolution and uh, evolutionary biology. Exactly. Now, in the case of the efficient markets hypothesis, the the version of rationality there is, is such that all the information about a security is already at all times reflected in a share price, maybe with some instantaneous period for adaptability. How does that change once you bring in your different notion of uh, rationality? Well, to begin with, Farmer's genius in formulating the efficient markets hypothesis. And, and Samuel's talking about Gene Farmer of, uh, of the University of Chicago. Yeah, that's right. Gene Farmer's genius in formulating the efficient markets hypothesis, along with Paul Samuelson, mm. is that prices fully reflect all available information. Now, that statement contains two parts. The first is that prices fully reflect the available information. But the second is that the fully reflect part, that's the part that we have to keep in mind when we think about how humans actually make decisions and incorporate those kinds of pieces of information into prices. It's human behavior uh, that really causes us these kinds of issues that psychologists have been documenting. Once we understand how human behavior works, we see that sometimes prices don't reflect all available information. Or, Or if they do, they reflect more than just information. They also reflect emotion. And that makes the theories much more complex. Okay, let's try looking at some worked examples from our mutually shared history. You've written a lot about what is now almost a forgotten incident, 97 and 98, the Asian crisis, and then LTCM, and then very scarily the quant quake of 2007, when a bunch of very interesting quantitative hedge funds suddenly lost inordinate amounts of money in what appeared to be a clear blue sky. And then obviously we have the the crisis of 2008. How did each of those incidents help you develop this theory? And is there any way this theory might have helped us at least mitigate what happened in those those very scary events? Well, in fact, it, it was exactly those events that really formulated my thinking about the adaptive markets hypothesis and got me to start down this path, try to understand how markets really work. So the basic idea behind crisis is Mm. that investors are reacting, and they're not reacting rationally necessarily, they're reacting emotionally. Uh, In fact, if you look at the hedge fund industry, I call that the Galapagos Islands of the financial industry, because you can see evolution happening before your very eyes. You can see species coming and going, 
and reacting almost in a biological perspective, not a physical or mathematical one. So when you have these kind of crises, typically what happens is that investors react very strongly by pulling assets from risky securities and putting them into safe assets, uh, flight to quality, or as I call it, freaking out. (laughs) (laughs) When investors freak out, they reduce the expected return on risky assets and increase the expected return on safe assets because they're selling the risky assets, causing their prices to go down, and buying the safe assets, causing the prices to go up. When you look at the data, during those periods, what you see is that investors are not getting rewarded for taking risk. They're getting punished for taking risk. So the whole idea of a risk-reward trade-off, which is central to modern finance, is turned on its head during these periods of crises. And I think that's the part that really requires a different narrative, a different explanation. And I believe that if we had the adaptive markets hypothesis at our disposal, we could have treated those periods very differently from a policy perspective. Now, one of the appeals of the efficient markets hypothesis, as it's taught in business school and so on, is that it does allow you to come up with very precise answers in numerical terms to very precise questions. You can be asked, how would you diversify away all the risk of such and such a bond? And there will actually be an answer to that question. Is moving to the adaptive markets hypothesis accepting that you cannot have quite the degree of precision that the EMH, the efficient markets hypothesis, offers us? Or is it giving us an equivalently powerful but more complicated model? Well, I would argue that it is a more complicated model, but eventually we actually can have the same level of precision as we do now in efficient markets. The only issue is that this is early days for the adaptive markets hypothesis. And so we don't yet have the corpus of research that we have for efficient markets, which has been around for for many decades. In particular, what the adaptive markets hypothesis tells us to do is to actually collect different kinds of data from what we're doing now and analyze them differently. In particular, we have to think about financial markets more as an ecosystem Mm. rather than a mechanistic kind of a system. And what that means is that we have to start collecting information about the ecosystem the same way that an ecologist or evolutionary biologist would. We have to ask what the key species are in the ecosystem, what their biomasses are, how they compete, how they survive and adapt, Uh, all of the various different aspects of the flora and fauna of financial markets have to be measured, quantified, and analyzed. We don't do that right now. We have a very different view of financial markets that's really driven by this physicist's perspective. But in fact, we don't have a physical model. We really have a biological one. Okay, not that you have anything against all your friends in the physics department at MIT, but that may not be the the relevant science. Exactly. Physics is a much more simple approach to modeling the world than biology because the underlying phenomenon uh, are that much simpler. You know, Richard Feynman, the Mm. great physicist, said it best. One year at a Caltech graduation, in the midst of a stock market crash, Feynman said to his students, imagine how much more complicated physics would be if electrons had feelings. (laughs) And I think that really captures the difference between physics and biology. Okay, and it's also why economists' models tend not to work quite as well as physicists' models do, I suppose. Exactly. Now, let's try to do some of this ecological research in real time, or at least get an example of it. Perhaps the biggest phenomenon of the moment in the financial ecosystem is the rise of beta, of big passive fund management, and the decline of the traditional model of active management, long-only mutual funds with about 100 stocks in them. How would you go about modeling that with the adaptive model? How how would you predict this uh, obviously very dramatic shift over the last 10 years towards passive? Well, that's a great example. Last year, I published an article titled, What is an Index?, And that article was exactly geared towards trying to understand the shift in passive investing as we have more and more assets in that space. So we have to begin first with the recognition that John Bogle has really transformed the financial industry. The founder of Vanguard. The founder of Vanguard has really transformed Mm -hmm. the industry. Part of the reason he did so was not because of efficient markets, but because of something that Mr. Bogle calls the CMH, 
CMH stands for the cost matters hypothesis. And I find this an incredibly compelling idea. The fact is that using passive investment vehicles like Vanguard's mutual funds, investors can save a significant amount of money in terms of the fees that are usually charged. And that matters over time. So what's happened over the last several decades since Vanguard started providing their products and services is that a large number of investors have flocked to these index funds. And that's a good thing in general, but what it does do is to create systematic risk. In other words, if it turns out that a fund loses money, that means that you and I both experience losses if we're invested in the same fund. The fact that so many people now are indexing means that we are now all tied together to the same outcomes. And when we start getting those outcomes in a synchronous fashion, we will start hurting in that very same way. And hurting behavior can actually affect markets in a very dramatic fashion. Well, I completely agree with you on, on that one. I can remember people talking to me in 07 ahead of the ahead of the crisis saying that what you've got to worry about is that this is like the Serengeti. Mm-hmm. And everybody knows that if you if you want to be one, the wildebeest who doesn't get chomped by the, the cheetah or the lion, you need to be in the middle of the herd. And that's actually what's most dangerous. You also look very intriguingly at, at network theory, at connectedness, which is another... You know, another idea that a lot of us only discovered for the first time once we discovered it mattered in (laughs) 07 and 08. Could you explain how connectedness matters and how that affects the uh, adaptive markets hypothesis? That's a very important concept. And the concept really emerges as a contrast to what is currently being done now in areas like risk management for financial investments. Mm. So typically, when we think about risk management and investor behavior, we use a very statistical approach that the returns of a particular investment are going to be dictated by the statistical distribution. But in fact, what happens in financial markets is that investors are going to be reacting to each other's behavior. And so the more tightly connected a market is, the more investors are tied to each other's fates, the more likely it is that small perturbations in market values can spread like a cascade or a virus to the entire market. So measuring connectedness, measuring how one institution or individual is tied to the fate of another institution or individual can give us insights into how easily these kinds of shocks can propagate and how they can be easily magnified very, very quickly if we have the wrong event happening at the wrong time. And ultimately, the financial crisis is the uh, you know, perfect illustration of that. Okay, so to try to make sure people can visualize this or understand this, your, your MIT colleague Bob Merton has done a lot of work on this concept uh, as well. Say you take one company like a big investment bank and then look at how many different interrelationships or relationships it has with other companies, other funds, other entities, and the more little lines you have, the, the more opaque the chart looks, the more connected it is and the more worried you should be about the health of that company, or you should more concerned you should be about the importance of that company. Is that, does that get to the concept? Exactly. If you think about the relationship between, say, particular sovereign debt, uh, Greek debt, for example, mm. and the various different institutions that hold Greek debt as part of their asset holdings, imagine if Greek debt defaults. That sends shockwaves to all of the various different financial institutions that happen to invest in that asset. So one way to capture that in some work that I've been doing with Bob Merton and other co-authors, we construct a network diagram, which looks like kind of a spider web, where connections between certain kinds of securities and investors will give you a sense of just what happens when a particular security fails. That spider web can easily turn into something that looks more like a ball of yarn, a much more densely specified graph when you've got deeper connections and crisis conditions. And what happened during the financial crisis, as well as during the European debt crisis, is that these connections allowed relatively small shocks to propagate much more quickly and develop into much, much larger financial crises. Okay, and arguably in the case of Europe, now that quite a lot of the big institutions have managed to disengage from Greece to a large extent, that's why people are less uh, less worried than they were. A Greek disaster at this point would be less disastrous for the rest of Europe than it would have been 
in 2010. That's right. And imagine if we actually had access to these network diagrams in advance, we could have managed these kinds of exposures much more deftly in order to be able to reduce the impact or maybe even avoid some of these kinds of global crises. Okay, so that gives us some idea of how this can model the crisis and how we might have might have been able to foresee some of it. What, therefore, does that imply for regulation? We've had, certainly if you believe the verdict that markets have made so far, there seems to be quite a genuine belief that the Americans here in the US have done quite a good job of re-regulating after the crisis, or at least if you look at what people are prepared to pay for US securities, the market seems quite comfortable. They're rather less convinced about what's happened in Europe. What does this suggest we should be doing about regulation and should we be comfortable with the state of re-regulation as we have it at the moment? Well, I think the adaptive markets hypothesis suggests that we want to take a different approach to regulation. And that is to recognize the human nature is a critical part, not only of the regulated, but also of the regulators. Mm. It's a very complex dynamic that actually has a relatively simple illustration in the swinging of a pendulum with regard to tight versus loose regulations. I think we all recognize that there are periods where regulation becomes relatively lax, uh, typically during market uh, booms and uh, bull markets. Uh, When everything is going well, regulators may be a little bit less likely to rein in these various different financial institutions and activities. Of course, that's exactly when they ought to be reining in those activities. But it's very difficult because human nature tells us that if everything is going well, why bother trying to take the punch bowl away? Right. And similarly, when things are going badly, after a financial crisis, we tend to impose lots and lots of regulations. But that's probably the wrong time to be doing it. And so this kind of feast or famine, this uh, cycle of regulatory stringency uh, versus uh, uh, being more relaxed, that's also part of human nature. And unless we recognize that feature of our behavior, we're never going to be able to break free from those cycles. The hope is that with the adaptive markets hypothesis as the driving force behind some of these regulatory innovations, we might be able to begin to develop countercyclical regulatory policies to deal with these issues. There's a very famous book about uh, behavioral psychology called Nudge. I mean, how do you affect that kind of change? Do you have uh, you need to be countercyclical written as a, as, a, as a big in big letters coming up on a regulator's computer screen every 10 minutes or something to remind them or uh, how do you nudge things in the correct direction? Well, so I'm actually a big fan of that book. I I find it fascinating. But I want to remind the listeners that nudge is both a verb and a noun. Right. And although I think the author of that book was using it as a verb to be able to nudge individuals to making the right decision, very often as a noun, we tend to dismiss people who are nudges simply because they really don't provide us with the kind of advice that we want to hear. I think that nudging is not enough. I think we have to redesign the very structure of regulation to develop these kinds of systematic counterbalancing effects in the same way that here in the United States, we have bicameral legislation, we have three branches of government, and we see that that's actually quite valuable to have this almost adversarial aspect of these types of organizations that can counterbalance some of our worst tendencies at the most trying times. That's what regulation is really supposed to be about. It's supposed Mm. to prevent us from doing the things that we know we're going to want to do and that we should not do during these periods. We need to have more of a recognition of the origin of that kind of behavior and to design policies to be able to deal with it in a more effective way. Now, does that mean, sure, I agree, the U.S. Constitution must be the most most successful example of a system of checks and balances that has endured uh, you know, remarkably long time, over two centuries now. The key thing about the U.S. Constitution, it seems to me, as a, as a foreigner coming here, is that it's very much principles-based and written in very great generalizations so that it can have flexibility over time. If we take an example of Dodd-Frank, for example, well, obviously the most relevant example for the for the U.S. financial system at the moment, 
there are principles motivating it, but it's extremely tightly prescriptive. Does that imply that that's the wrong way to go, that it doesn't allow for the kind of adaptation and uh, evolution that you've been around a, a core set of principles that you're suggesting? Well, there's no doubt that that's part of it, but I think that there's a bigger difference that we have to keep in mm. mind. And the difference is that the U.S. Constitution's brilliance and genius is not so much that it was principles-based, but rather that underlying those principles is a deep recognition of and skepticism of human behavior. Right. We recognize that left to our own devices, we will end up doing things that could be counterproductive even to our own health and welfare. Mm. And so one way to do that is to create a system of checks and balances where we're constantly using the wisdom of crowds to help us make better decisions. And Dodd-Frank doesn't yet have that feature. It has a list of prescriptions, and some of them are very important and very productive, but it doesn't recognize that the ultimate origins of financial crises is human behavior, and we need to deal with that root issue before we can ever deal effectively with these crises. Okay. There's two more topics I'm hoping to uh, to cover. The book is runs to almost 600 pages, and I it's worth... I apologize for that. It's, I don't <laughs> think you should. It's worth reading. Uh, it's, it is thoroughly enjoyable, which is quite an achievement. Two more points I'd like to cover. One is whether there is a way... Finance deservedly has a bad reputation at the moment. People are angry with financiers. Is there a way that finance, if we understand better the way that markets work, can become more of a force for good, for positivity? Well, absolutely. I think that's a very important point and one that I tried to make at the very end of the book to mm. give some sense of what the future of finance is as well as the finance of the future. We haven't uh, been able to deal with these issues effectively because we don't recognize the fact that human nature does drive virtually every industry. And that means that we're going to get some very positive things from industry and some very negative things because of human nature. We all have within us the seeds of great things as well as terrible things. And so once you recognize that fact, the dual nature of human behavior, we can then begin to think about how to channel the forces to be able to make better use of these tools. For example, the idea of financial engineering has become quite a negative connotation over the course of the last couple of decades. But the fact is that financial engineering is responsible for some of the most important innovations in modern society. And in some recent work that my colleagues and I have been doing, we've been proposing to use financial engineering for dealing with some of society's biggest challenges, like cancer or fusion energy or climate change. Using the power of financial markets, we can actually get tremendous resources deployed to deal with these societal challenges. And I don't believe we can deal with those challenges in any other way. So finance can be a force of good as well as a force of greed. Now, let's just briefly discuss the uh, the curing of cancer uh, example, because it's obviously something we all of us care about. Mm -hmm. uh, and you've written about it and been encouraging this in a long way. As, as I understand it, the idea here is that you get the power of diversification so that you would create a fund that invests in maybe as many as 100 different attempts at finding different ways of uh, curing or ameliorating cancer. And if two or three or four of them work, the fact that 50 or 60 of them turn out not to lead anywhere needn't matter. There will still be a, a return. It's Get harnessing diversification to make it possible to uh, finance cancer research. Is that is that a fair summation of wh where your idea is heading for, for that, for, for cancer curing? It is. And in fact, it's an idea that is not new to the industry. Mm. If you take a look at pharmaceutical companies, they are portfolios of mm. multiple projects. The problem is that the portfolios may not be big enough in order to deal with the challenges that face us today. We may need to have a large mega fund to be able to contain all of the various different projects in order to reduce the risk enough that investors are able to get a decent rate of return and patients are able to get the drugs that they need. So being able to scale up the industry using these mega funds is an example of how financial engineering can actually help in ways that existing structures really don't allow. Is there a sense in which there's a perverse market incentive in that certainly the uh, a number of the bigger existing large pharma companies are trying to cut back on 
R&D or find ways not to spend so much on, on R&D because it's such a, a risky oper- operation. There's so much of a chance that you're going to invest billions and have nothing to, to show for it in financial terms. That's right. In fact, I think that pharmaceuticals have been unfairly maligned because they are doing exactly what shareholders, we investors, are telling them to do. We're telling them to make more money, reduce the risk, and be able to drive up their share prices. And so by cutting R&D, they are actually being able to do that because they're focusing on the less risky, more profitable parts of their business, which is late-stage drug development and marketing and drug delivery. What we really need to deal with is early-stage drug development. That's gotten a lot riskier because we've actually gotten quite a bit smarter about developing these drugs. And so all of the amazing designer drugs that are coming out, that's creating an increased risk at the early stages that we can actually help reduce using financial engineering. Okay, and that's a way of dealing with an adaptive market failure, a, a, a problem with the with the markets at present. My final question, you've hinted already that uh, passive funds may now be becoming too central to markets, or the next crisis is going to involve passive funds one way or another. Where do you see the ecosystem moving next? Tell me who the herbivores will be and who the carnivores will be in another 10 or 20 years' time. I think that index funds are going to have to change the way they construct portfolios and match various kinds of portfolios to investors. Gone are the days when you can put all of your money in one fund and forget about it and believe that when you retire, you'll have enough money to be able to do so in the style to which you would like to become accustomed. I think what we have to do now is to think much more carefully about different kinds of passive investing, different Mm. betas, if you will, Mm. and be able to put together portfolios in a much more sophisticated way. So the world of indexation is still very active and it's going to grow over time, but the kind of indexes that come about are going to have to become much more personalized. In the same way that we have precision medicine and personalized therapies, I think we need to have precision indexes and personalized portfolios. And we have the infrastructure today. We have the ability to do that. What we don't yet have is the algorithms, the software, the ability to model human behavior and to tailor a particular portfolio strategy to your specific needs, desires, and predilections. Once we do that, I think there'll be an incredible renaissance of indexation that will take us to the next generation, the future John Bogles and Vanguards. Mm. And I suppose the final question, algorithm is another one of those dirty words, uh, or has a bad name among many of the people who will be listening to this. How much can we reduce human intervention and how much can we leave to algorithms? We're, we're understanding the potentialities and the uh, the errors of our own brains better and better over time. How far can that go? Well, one of the key misunderstandings of artificial intelligence is that we're creating algorithms to replace human behavior and intervention. And I think the better way to think about it is that we're developing algorithms to leverage human behavior and intervention. What we want to be able to do is to allow humans to use their judgments in ways that are going to be most effective while at the same time automating the things that can be easily automated. And we're at the stage now where finance has a lot of automation, but we haven't yet figured out how to design strategies so that they can actually help manage portfolios to the tune that individuals need to have given their own individual circumstances. We're close, but we're not there yet. And if we can do that, if we can develop algorithms that can actually allow us to manage our portfolios as if we were the ones calling the shots, but in a rational fashion, that would reduce a lot of the issues that investors face today. We're close, but we're not there yet. I think in another 10 or 15 years, we will actually be a lot closer. And at that point, we may achieve what John Maynard Keynes set out as a goal for all economists. That is, going to an economist should be like going to the dentist. Exactly. More pleasant, but you have the same basic trust in an economist that you have in a dentist. That's right. Well, this has not been anything at all like a visit to the dentist. I could happily carry on talking for a very long time, but I fear we need to let you and the listeners go. Adaptive Markets by Andrew Lowe is in a bookstore near you very soon. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. It was a pleasure.
are back in the studio with Matt Klein and John Authors, and we are now going to do our long-form recommendations before closing out. Matt, what do you think our listeners should be either reading or viewing or listening to? So this was an article that came out very recently on Motherboard. It's about how farmers in the American Midwest are hacking into the software of their John Deere tractors. And it's a, it's a long and interesting article, but it, the sort of basic key point is that tractors we think of as being not necessarily a very sophisticated piece of technology that's been around for a very long time. But nowadays, for a variety of reasons, you have companies that make tra- – an American manufacturing company that has found itself uh, – its way to success by putting a lot of software in their tractors – and one of the things that software does, it makes it very difficult for people to repair the tractor unless they get a special John Deere service person with their own software to unlock things. So you can think of this as sort of the triumph of software as a service being spread out into a whole bunch of unrelated industries. On the other hand, you also see how farmers are adapting to this by getting you know, black market versions from Ukraine. And interestingly, there's sort of a legal loophole where in 2015, the government agreed that the Digital Millennium Copyright Act did not apply to software in vehicles. However, Deere has been trying to get around this by making sure that everyone who buys a John Deere tractor has to sign uh, an agreement with them that they will not attempt to modify the software. So there's a very interesting set of, set of legal disputes here and, and the relationship of how manufacturing adapts and how you can maintain, you know, is it hardware or software? There's a lot of interesting stuff there. So I definitely recommend that. Fascinating. John? I guess I would recommend longer read but one you can burrow into and enjoy would be a book called A Man for All Markets by Edward O. Thorpe who I was lucky enough to have lunch with for the FT a few weeks ago the book is now out it's basically his autobiography he's a remarkable guy now in his 80s works out how to uh, beat the dealer at, uh, at Blackjack nearly worked out how to uh, how to predict where a roulette ball was going to fall and then went on to be arguably the first great quant hedge fund manager and he's now in his 80s very sadly widowed a few years ago and after my lunch with him he was off to go scuba diving in the Maldives with his new girlfriend his something about his his life seems to be working for him it's an amazing story he has to tell uh, but he also gives you a lot of advice for how to take life by the scruff of the neck and he gives you a lot of advice on uh, on how to invest along the way. John Authors, Chief Investment Commentator at the FT. Uh, thanks so much for uh, joining Alpha Chat this week. Well, thank you. Matt, always a pleasure. Excited, Carter. And that is all the time we have for today's show. Email us at alphachat at ft.com or give us a call at 917-551-5012. For our listeners overseas, that is a U.S. code, so the country code is plus one. Rate the show and leave us a review on iTunes. I know everybody says it, but it's actually true that it really does help people find out about us. I'm on Twitter at Cardiff Garcia. Matt, you have a weird Twitter handle. What is it? M underscore C underscore K-L-E-I-N. John, what's yours? I've got a nice rare name. I'm at John Authors. Very nice. Thank you. And finally, you can find show notes at ft.com forward slash alpha chat. One last thing. If it were possible to securitize somebody's career it would be that of amy keen producer and editor of this podcast i would go long and i would leave her up because that definitely is a strategy that will be efficiently and adaptively optimal thanks for everything amy and thanks to our listeners we'll see you here again next week for another edition of alpha chat